internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Welcome to the show, everybody. I am joined by the lovely Erica Cantor, as usual, with her mother, Mrs. Cantor, listening at home. Hi, Mrs. Cantor. Hello, everybody. Hello, Mom. <laughs> and uh, we are joined today by Brandon Schran, who is the host of the newer podcast called The Snake River Killer. And I'm super excited to talk about it because you, uh, you're, you're, you're a man after my own heart, Brandon, the way you, you guys are con- uh, conducting the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, thanks for uh, those kind words. So before we get into the podcast, I want to talk a little bit about your your background. So you're you're an author by trade, is that right? Yeah, that's kind of my first, you know, my go-to medium for storytelling. Um I wrote my first book, which was a memoir, um right out of graduate school. It got a little bit of nat- national attention. It was called The Ender's Hotel. I grew up in this uh big boom town brick building hotel where we had a restaurant and a bar and it was very working class kind of place. Um, and I, we lived there and I was an only child running around this building built in 1919. And, you know, the book opens up, it's cause it's true. The book opens up with a murder that happened in our bar. A guy accidentally shot his friend, uh, in a drunken misunderstanding. And my oh, mom wow. was, my mom was bartending at the time. I was about oh, two. Man. Yeah. And it was kind of a mess and it was this whole, whole thing in the center of our family story. So I thought that would be an interesting book. And I, that's what started me on that, on that course. And I just needed to kind of find a way to um, make the story large enough that other people could engage in it. And so I saw this hotel as kind of a microcosm of the story of the American West in the 80s, where you had a lot of itinerant workers coming through small towns, working in mining and that kind of thing. I said somewhere in the book that if you uh, had checked into our hotel in the 1980s or 70s, bets are pretty good that your life had just taken a turn for the worse. You know, we our rooms, <laughs> our rooms were like 17 bucks a night, right? So it was a uh, it was an interesting experience. So yeah, that was my first book. And I came up through academia. I taught uh, creative writing and literature at the University of Idaho for about 12 years before going to the dark side of administration at Washington State University. So um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, interestingly enough, so then my second book was a little bit of a follow-up on this on the first. And then my book that came out in 2021 was radically different. It was uh, about, uh, it's a true story. It's a biography of a guy who started a mail order money back guarantee religion and the great depression. And uh, it was called Psychiana. It was worldwide. He charged a dollar per lesson, made a fortune when everybody else was struggling. And uh, I took forever to write that book. It was a lot of research. It was just quirky. It was kind of a precursor to uh, Scientology. And uh, my publisher put on the back of the book biography slash true crime, and I was that was that was kind of interesting to me because um, he was always being hounded by federal agents and postal inspectors and the FBI, and he was lied on his passport and he was deported from the states and his whole thing. Anyway, so he always had the law nipping at his heels, 
And uh, I hadn't considered it was true crime until they put it on there. And I'm like, well, I guess it is kind of true crime. And, you know, like everybody else, I listened to Serial back when it first came out. And I was like, this is a great platform for storytelling. And I just wanted to give it a shot. So last year I heard of these cases and thought, you know, why not? I didn't even know where to begin, but I learned as I went, still learning. So that's a little bit of my background, my writing background and kind of how it crossed over into uh, podcasting. We seem to figure it out pretty just based on the fact that my professional co-host is in her closet and you look like you're in a professional studio. Uh, so you figured it out quicker than Erica. That's what happens when you pick somebody up off the streets, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That, that's true. I, Erica at a, at a crime con brought me a bottle of whiskey once and I was like, well, she's a keeper. So we, right. uh, you know, oh, yeah. we got to. You got to make it how you can make it. Bribe your That's way right. and it works. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, and, and you live now. You live in Pullman, Washington, right? That's right. Yeah. Is that where you grew up? Is that where the where the hotel was? No, that was in southern Idaho. Um, okay. Yeah. So, you know, Idaho is this very long, elongated, boot shaped state, and so I was down sort of by the sole of the uh, the sole of the boot. And now we're up by the panhandle. Um, and of course, now, you know, with the UI murders, everybody kind of knows a little bit of the geography of University of Idaho and Pullman, Washington. So, you know, I, it was weird because I was in Dallas. Um, Erica, you'll appreciate this. I was in Dallas at a conference and I was in my closet in the hotel room recording <laughs> an episode. And um I, my phone, my phone buzzed and it was a, it was an emergency alert from Washington state university saying that there had been a homicide over at U of I homicide singular, not plural. Hmm. So I was trying to figure out what was going on in real time. And, and the episode I was working on was a UI student who was murdered 40 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Kristen David. And so it was just a strange headspace to be in. And, uh, the, how it just converged and turns out my son knew Ethan. Uh, Ethan was a member of Sigma Chi. I am as well. I worked with his chapter a little bit as an advisor. I didn't know him. I don't think I met him, but my son had met him. Um, my son is a Sigma Chi at a different university, but you know, they crossed paths. And so it really was one of those things where everybody says it's a close knit community. That's more than just kind of a trope. That was actually true. Either you knew them or you knew somebody who knew them. So it was a strange time to launch a true crime podcast in this area. Yeah, because you just started the show in October, this past October, right? That's right. Yeah, we dropped our first episode on Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that area is super interesting. So I, I hunt quite a bit in northwest Montana. Okay. Right, I mean, right on the Idaho border. And one of the first times I was hunting up there, I had uh, a local tell me, careful where you hike because you know because I, I, I do a lot of backpack hunting. And he, he said, you could very easily – hike into Idaho and then end up in Washington before you realize it because it's yeah. such a, a skinny yeah. little strip yeah. right there yeah. Where, it, yeah. where it sticks up. And you, so did, did you say that you taught at, at UI? Yeah, for like 12 years. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're very familiar. So you taught at UI, you live in Pullman and that's where- um, Kohlberger was the, a student. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out, so I'm the uh, communications director for the College of Ag and Human Natural Resource Sciences, we're the largest college on campus. And um, turns out he did some time slip work for us. And so I had to kind of help Central Communications with, you know, tracking his time with us and all of that. So Hmm. it's, you know, 
th- there was just a lot of intersections there. So you you said you hunt quite a bit, Bob. I understand from an episode I listened to that you raise quail. I used to hunt quail when I was there a kid. Go. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is now you're talking speaking my language. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm like, I used to hunt quail, but I never thought about raising quail. And I would the only thing that would have made me more surprised if you said you were like a penguin farmer or something like that. <laughs> right. Just, <laughs> don't give him well, any so, ideas. <laughs> so I d- I don't raise bobwhite quail, which is probably what you were hunting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, I hunt a, I, or I raise a a domestic breed of them called Caternix quail. But yeah, I have raised a bobwhite to train my dog because I, I bird hunt a lot. I bird, I, I hunt grouse and woodcock and pheasant a lot with my dog. So I <laughs> use them to train my dog quite a bit. See, small world, everything comes together, Erica. See, you thought that those conversations about quail were not important. Six degrees of I quail. Guess I was wrong. Right yes, there, you go. <laughs> yeah. So. You 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 spent all this time in academia and as an author, and then and then the story that were well, and the title of your podcast, the Snake River Killer, uh, is the is the case cases that you that you cover on the podcast. You want you said you wanted to to try this podcast medium. How did you make that that leap? Because um, because it, it wasn't just isn't there like kind of a team behind you that that all came together to make the show? So about a year ago, I had the idea. I came across these cases. I, I wanted to see if there were any unsolved cases in my area. And it turns out that there were a string of them all connected to uh, one individual. So I wanted to start a podcast, didn't know how to do it, um, did a lot of research, looked into equipment and software and everything else, and was a little bit scared because it's a big undertaking as I was beginning to see. It's not just uh, murder only murders in the building where you're running around with your iPhone, which <laughs> yeah. I love that show, by the way. It's a great show. It's great. Sure. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, that's, you know, as you know, there's a lot more to it. So I, you know, I'm like, okay, I can record, I can write the scripts, I can do research, but I don't know how to do like engineering. So I went on Reddit. And God bless Reddit, I just said, looking for an engineer and Blake Walker popped up and immediately we we just synced up on the tone and tenor of the show. He's also a musician, so he wrote the score for the show, which we're actually releasing an album of the music. Oh, wow. Because why not? And because uh, I think it's that good. And um, we just were right on the money. And so it started with sort of Blake and I and Gloria Boberts, who's been working these cases for uh, 20 years. One of her cousins was one of the victims. And so I reached out to her first. I didn't want to tread on her territory. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, to see if, uh, if she thought that would be a good idea. She thought it was great. So I had her on board and I had an engineer. And then from there, you know, the research, because there's so many cases, it became, I work a full-time job and was trying to do this. So I needed help. So I reached out to an old college friend, Paul Dale, who's a journalist. And uh, I knew he knew how to investigate. He came on board. Then I had uh, a graphic designer in the area. She reached out to me and um, I said, hey, I could use a graphic designer because I have no idea what I'm doing there. And uh, she's like, all right, great. And then uh, Dr. Marianne White, who's a criminologist, reached out to me and she's in Atlanta and she said, I'd love to help. And so I said, great, come aboard. And then we got a private investigator recently who's going to be joining the show as well. So it kind of cascaded mm-hmm. and it started with just kind of me and, you know, a microphone and then it, and it became this whole kind of team effort. So 
That's a, that's amazing. I, I'm yeah. I'm eight years into Truth and Justice, and I just just found Erica, literally Finally on the street with me a the street, bottle yeah. of whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was just wandering around with a bottle of whiskey. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that that person looks like they would be good to help out yeah. with the podcast. Yeah. She said, "Hey, you want to snort?" And I yeah. said, "Yeah, you want to yeah. be on the podcast?" Yeah. Yeah. Man, mom, that's not true at all. Don't be true, mom. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that it's incredible. And I love what you're doing because you are, you're, you're, am I correct in understanding your goal is to try and solve this case? Right. You know, I just interviewed a detective in Chicago on one of the cases and he believes clearly that these cases are solvable. Now it's going to come through DNA, I think. And I know that the FBI is working some clues behind the scenes that I think have to do with the uh, DNA, but um, I think that they are solvable and they're all connected to one person of interest. And, you know, as police say, they don't believe in coincidences. And this guy, you know, I've been around like 50 years and I don't have people dropping like flies around me, you know, like right. <laughs> everywhere I go. Um, right. This This guy, everywhere he goes, there's a girl goes missing, a little girl goes missing from the house he's living in. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's just, so that was one of the impulses. And, you know, I think maybe a little bit like you, Bob, two things that always bother me. One is the innocent who are accused, wrongly accused of something. And then the flip side of that is when the bad guy is getting away, like those two right. things just always rub me wrong. And, you know, I figured my training in academia as a researcher, as a writer, I thought I would give it a go. And so far, you know, I think it's been doing pretty well. I don't know how to measure that, but I feel good about what we're producing and the team feels good about it. And I knew from the, from the outset that uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts and we know that they kind of are on a spectrum of quality and that kind of thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. I knew that if I was going to do this, that I wanted to throw everything I had at it because the victims deserve that. They deserve my full effort. To that end, I knew that I wanted to, I wanted the, the the scripting to be sound natural, but to have my writing sensibility in it. I wanted the immersive experience. I wanted the research to be deep and far-reaching, and um, I want the listeners to be able to sink into an episode and and be there. So these cases matter to them. Mm -hmm. I listened to like one podcast and it's like two dudes, a microphone and a Wikipedia article, article, you know, and it's like, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And I mean, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, that's fine. Sure. Cause that's just a hobby and that's cool. But I wanted to do something bigger, more substantive and, you know, something that maybe would have a real impact. And I don't know if it will, but I'm going to keep pushing. Well, I, I like the stock and much like truth and justice, you encourage your audience to, uh, to get involved in the investigation and participate, right. you put case documents up. Your website is snakeriverkiller.com uh, where people can go and they can check out case documents and stuff and engage in in the investigation, uh, which is which is proven, at least I can speak from personal experience, to be an effective model. You put a whole bunch of eyes on something and, and you find that you can figure things out that the original investigators never did just because everybody has their own – different, you know, their own experiences, their own skill sets. And when you tap into that wide range, you're much more likely to push the ball forward. You, so as of right now, when we're recording this, you have seven episodes out so far. So what, what is the release schedule? Because that, that can't be weekly be from Halloween till now. No, that's a really good question. <laughs> and that's been the hard part. Like our release schedule is 
more or less every two weeks. Um, okay. And this week, uh, we're dropping episode eight on Friday. Okay. Just because, you know, until I can figure out how to clone myself or add 12 hours onto each day, <sighs> right. you know, it's just a lot. It's a lot. And I don't want to put out something half-baked. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, you know, I know it's not the greatest way to do a podcast. I know that, you know, I, I'm mindful of that, but you know, the reviews have been solid. The feedback has been solid and my audience such as it is, you know, they're, they're pretty loyal and they're, they're pretty forgiving, but I try to do it about every two weeks to drop an episode. And I try to do two episodes, two hours on each case. That's been the model. You know, it's not easy. It's tough, you know, with family and a full-time job and everything else, but that's been, that's been my goal. Yeah. People underestimate how long it takes. I'm dealing with that right now with truth and justice. I decided I did a very complicated, very data heavy episode. Mm -hmm this past week. So I thought, you know what will make this easier? This is one episode. I need to make a video that shows all this stuff. Right. I'm now 24 hours into working on building this video. And somehow I, in the next day I have to put together uh, another episode for Sunday, for Sunday's episode. So it's great. It's like people don't, it's like they just see the, you know, they see your final product you put out in the, right. either the episode or in this case, even the video. And well, it's only 10 minutes long. How long could that take? When when you're terrible at Photoshop yeah. like me, it takes a long time to do all of that. And I think yes. that goes back to, though, too, like just talking about the kind of crowdsourcing approach of solving these cases, the time. Like the time is such a huge resource that most of us don't have unlimited amounts of, you know, yeah. if you're working a day job or et cetera, et cetera, whatever else you got going on that you don't always have time to deep dive into every little thing, but there are plenty of people out there who do have time and want yeah. to, and, you know, just having somebody to take the time to maybe, you know, read a thousand page transcript word for word, you know, that's something that not everybody else can invest in. So I think it's both those things kind of really make it such a valuable medium yeah. for this. And I, and I tap in and I'm, and I'm sure you do too, Brandon, and you, and you certainly will as you move along tap into all different kinds. So for this week's episode on, on truth and justice, I had someone who I'm pretty sure hates my guts and, and you know, they, they think that the case I'm working on, they think the people are guilty and I think they're innocent, but they've been harping on me about not playing some interview or something they think shows guilt. I actually messaged her this morning. I'm like, Hey, you want me to play an interview that I haven't played yet? I don't have time to write an episode this week. So <laughs> you tell me what that what that interview is you want to hear and I'll play it for you. There you go. Nice. We're <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. I never expected how many people would actually reach out, you know, and mm-hmm. I didn't have any I don't have anybody doing marketing. I mean, just marketing a podcast could be a full-time job, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um so this was kind of just my guerrilla DIY marketing, but you know, it's been getting a little bit of traction and people are reaching out um, from all corners of the country. And you're right. I mean, some of them are retired. They've got time. They've got chops. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, that's that's mm-hmm. great. You know, some of them reach out with ideas. Some of the ideas are interesting. Some of them are like, you know, that's something I'll consider. And you put it in the back of your mind and some of them you jump on. And so I, I, I thought from the get-go that getting a lot of eyes on the cases was critical. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. So let's talk about the case, the, well, the, the series of cases. Uh, the Again, the podcast and the and the series we're talking about is the Snake River Killer. 
It's a series of unsolved but seemingly connected murders and disappearances between 1979 and 1982 in the Lewis and Clark Valley in the Pacific Northwest. So I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Brandon. You can kind of break down, give people an idea of what this what this case looks like. Right. So, you know, the cases that occur in the LC Valley where you have two major rivers converging, the Snake River and the Clear and the Clearwater, you have three states, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho all meet right there. So it's in in some ways kind of the perfect place for a serial killer type to, you know, run amok, especially back in the 70s and 80s. So the first case that I started with was the disappearance of 12-year-old Christina White. Um, she disappeared on uh, April 28, 1979 during the Soton County Fair. Um, she disappeared from the house that our person of interest was living in at the time. That case went cold. Um, they had a lot of theories, you know, everything from she ran away, that a cult abducted her, uh, you know, there was a carnival in town, they thought that. But it wasn't until 1982 where three young people went missing on the same night, September September 12th, 1982, from Civic Theater, where our, the person of interest was that night. He was present at that location. So there's three interca- interconnected cases there. A year earlier, the UI student that I referenced earlier that I was doing an episode on while I was in Dallas when the UI murders occurred – Kristen David was riding her bike from Moscow, Idaho, down to Lewiston. It's about 30 miles. It's no small ride. And um, she vanished. And then about five days later, a fisherman found her body parts in black plastic bags. She had been dismembered. So she had worked at the Civic Theater where the person of interest also was working. And they may have crossed paths a few other times. So that's that one. But then if you – so I started with those cases. And then I went back in time to Chicago, where our person of interest was a 15-year-old YMCA counselor, and one of his one of the girls that he counseled at the YMCA was murdered in his neighborhood uh, on August 1st, 1963. Brutally murdered, raped, stabbed, bludgeoned. You know, I was talking with this detective from Chicago, and he said they just didn't consider 15-year-old kid capable of murder back then. Yeah. They were looking at um, all, you know, the known sex offenders in the area and that kind of thing. So that's the first case that Gloria found, one of the earliest ones. And then what I'm moving on to now is once he leaves Chicago, he goes into Vietnam. He gets into California in the Bay Area, and uh, he is arrested in 1972 for breaking into a mortuary where there's the remains of a 17-year-old girl. It's the only thing in there, the only person, the only body in there. And when he was breaking into the mortuary, he had a camera, a flashlight, and a knife in a like a scabbard, like on his belt. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Oh, that's my girlfriend. I just wanted to spend one more night with her." Which, Ugh. right? But then he was later questioned about it by the Lewiston police, who heard about this case, and he said, "Oh, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time." Mm-hmm. Wow. So there's that, and then it extends out to he moved to North Carolina and. Uh, I think about 10 years ago, a 16-year-old girl was found dead a mile from his house. Um, and so he was questioning that as well. So we're tracking from 1963 really up to the present day. But the show started out with that that those string of cases along the Snake River. Yeah. And this guy would be – is he still around? Because he'd be, what, mid-70s by now? Yes. He's still alive, still married to the same woman he's been married to for 
since 1981 and uh, yeah, very alive and well uh, in North Carolina. But time is kind of, you know, of the essence here because he is, mm-hmm. he is, you know, getting older. Yeah, that's great. I didn't realize, I, I, I knew about the Chicago case. I didn't know about the, the, um, the one in North Carolina as well. So it seems like everywhere he goes, young girls go missing. What's interesting that of the, um, the three that went missing in 19, was it 82 that, 82. Uh, uh, Stephen Pearsall, Pearsall, that was the, is that, is that the only male victim in this string that we know of? Yeah. And that's a, you know, big question mark there because they haven't found his body. They found the two bodies of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller. Um, they found their bodies about 25 miles from the theater. And Stephen was at the theater that night when Lance was there as well. And as long as they don't, don't find his body, Stephen kind of has to stay in the suspect category. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Even though law enforcement is like 99.9% sure he's a victim and not a suspect. I was going to ask about that was, and you may or may not do know this, but like early on after that happened, was he initially like very seriously considered as a suspect? Was that kind of the initial theory, but then they yeah. moved away? Yeah, that was the initial theory. And, um, you know, because the counties and the state agencies weren't really talking to each other, it was when when the Asotan County over in Washington Sheriff's Department learned that the one of the persons of interest was the guy we're looking at in the Civic Theater case. So they're like, he was living at the house that Christina White went missing from. And that was their aha moment mm-hmm. where the, you know, across the state lines, they started working together, connecting the pieces. But the problem is they just didn't have any physical evidence and they had, you know, limited resources and technology then. Right. So there's that. Mm -hmm. I just kind of want to break, break this down. So Christina White, she was the, she was 12 years old. She went missing in 1979. She was the one that was, she went to the county fair and her body has never been found. So he, Lance Voss Mm. uh, was, is the person of interest. So he lived at that house or was he, was he living at the house at that time or had previously lived there? From what the detective on the case, working that case, Jackie Nichols has told me he was living there at the time. He was dating the woman who lived there, who they later married. The woman who was living there had a daughter right around the age of Christina White and they were friends. And so Christina goes over to the house. She's feeling not well. So she's, you know, maybe has some heat exhaustion, that kind of thing. I've read reports that Lance said he was the last one to see her. And then I've read reports that kind of contradicted that. So Mm -hmm. there's some murkiness there, but yes, he was, Mm -hmm. he had his own house just a few blocks down that was empty, Uh but he was staying at that house that Christina White vanished from. So that's, that's 79, 12 year old Christina White goes missing from a house that he's staying in. And then 81, Two years later is when Kristen David, 22 years old college student, she goes on a bike ride and goes missing. And she was the one where her dismembered remains were found in the bags along the river. That's right. She sewed costumes at the Civic Theater that Lance uh, was very engaged in and worked at. So we know that there is at least potential of them crossing paths there. Okay. And then in 82, so the next year, that's when uh Stephen Pearsall, who was 35 years old, went missing. He's never been found. And on the same day, he goes missing. 
Brandy Miller and Christina Nelson, who were 18 and 21 and were stepsisters, they also disappeared on that same day, which, in, again, they all had connections to the theater and Lance had been at the theater. How many coincidences can there be right. everywhere he goes? Yeah, well, the thinking on Stephen Pearsall is that law enforcement believe that Stephen walked in on Lance as he was either disposing of the bodies or cleaning up or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he was then killed because he walked in on it. Right. That's right. their that's their working theory. Uh, you know, otherwise all the victims moving forward are are, are female and he's mm -hmm. the only male. So yeah, that was eighty two. Right. And they're all younger, I mean all the way down to twelve years old up to twenty two years old, but they're younger females that were that were all killed. Um, and then the you know, over the years, a lot of people have confessed. Um, Erica mentioned her note here the, in Otis Tool confessed to the crime, but then was later. How was he ruled out after confessing? My understanding of that is that he wasn't in the area. He said he was in the area, but they proved that he was not anywhere near the area at the time. Uh -huh. And and I think he was known for also confessing to other crimes he didn't commit. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, he's known for uh, confessing to like almost every unsolved murder. Right, right, yeah. right. So they crossed him off the list pretty early on. So um, this Lance Voss has been a suspect for all these years, and as you've already done some great research and kind of connecting some the you know the case from Chicago, the case from California, the case from was it North Carolina or South Carolina? North Carolina, North Carolina, all together. Um, do you, do you, do you have an end in sight or are you just getting started with this investigation? I, I, you know, I don't have necessarily an end in sight. I want to get through the known cases and mm -hmm. we have also the case of Claudette Volova, who Lance had an affair with and who was an actress at the theater and she had evidently committed suicide, but he was the first one on the scene to find her body and report it. So, and there's some fuzziness around that a little bit. So that's going to be another case that we're going to look into a little bit more thoroughly. We'll look into, you know, I just did the episode eight on Diane Taylor, who was eight years old in Chicago, did two episodes on that. The, the eighth will drop on Friday. And then we'll look at Kayla Campbell in North Carolina. Um, Gloria has found another case in the greater Chicago area that she thinks might also be linked to him. So there are the unknown unknowns, right? We don't know of other, right. other people that might have gone missing in his orbit, which is, again, why I thought a podcast would be a good way to get more eyes and ears on, sure. on these cases and, and his movements. For sure. And and I, I think it's a great model. I think you're already doing some great work and it sounds like there's a lot more a lot more to come for you listening. There's already, by the time you hear this, there's already eight episodes dropped for you to binge on. Uh, his name is Brandon Schrand, and the podcast is called The Snake River Killer. Check it out. You've got eight episodes to binge, uh, and then you can you can join in on the investigation with Brandon and his team. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. 
Produced and edited by Kelly Barron's Brink. Our production manager and co-host is Erica Cantor. Music and show artwork was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And episode artwork is created by John Hayes. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. Make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. And thank you so much for listening. And make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.